Okay, you know. Hey, um, can you just start from the microservices where you give explanation on? Okay. So, as I was saying, I said um, microservices. Yeah. So your question here is. Um, the service boundary is how do you determine the boundaries between microservices? What are the key factors to consider when making these decisions? Yeah, so we good, good question. So, um, like determining these boundaries between microservices can be a complex process actually, and there's no one size that fits all solution. Okay. However, so, some key factors to consider when making these decisions will. Uh, you want to consider the size, like I said, um, the size. So when you're talking about the size, uh, by size I mean that the microservice should be small and should be focused. The microservice should not be elaborate, should not be too big. It must be concise, it must be small and focused. Yeah, so typically performing a single function, like the service, the microservice must perform a single function like this this um, single responsibility principle of um the system maybe design yeah so srp single responsibility says that a class or an object this is under the solid principle said a class or an object should have just one reason to change so you should not have um, classes or a class or a function rather you should not have classes or functions that are doing too many things because when a class or a function is doing too many things, one of the disadvantages um, when you want to modify it, when you want to make corrections, when there's a failure, how do you trace? Because if you decide maybe there's a failure in what you have done, you want to modify it tomorrow, you need to bring in, your change may affect so many things. So talking about a, a microservice, having just one um, being small and concise. So take for instance, if you are building a microservice, you can have a microservice for um, notification. So this service is just responsible for sending notification. And it works, maybe you can work with the trigger. Yeah, you can use other things, maybe like the message broker and, and the rest. So when you have this service that is just, uh, what they call it, notification, then you have another service probably just for Maybe we are building a banking application just for account opening. Then you have this other service for uh, any other function you just want uh, the service. So you just break you break the services into tiny bits of layer. Now, um, it, microservices is not the time. There are times when you don't need microservices. For example, you are building a system like small. You don't have. You are not expecting so much user. Maybe just maybe just few user. You do not expect the application to scale very large. Maybe a a company they, are, they need something for their internal. Uh, they need an internal application and they contracted this contract to you. Hello. I can hear you. I said like an in-house project. Exactly. So you have an in-house project and they give it to you to build. You do, they're not expecting so many. So building a microservice may be an overkill because um, 
one of the reasons why you use microservice so that this system um, scale will be available at all time but a system that maybe only a few number of people use uh, you may not really need a microservice for that another reason why you will not need a microservice is when you have a a very a low uh, what they call it development team you don't have so many developers who work on your project so you may you, the best approach for that project may not be a microservice because it may take you so long a time to fulfill there you talk about deployment how you deploy your applications also it's more cost effective deploying a microservice application because you are deploying little little chunks of services and uh, looking at management also you know, so some people may argue that managing a microservice is more difficult than managing a monolithic application maybe it's because it's just a single application but that is left for that's an argument for another day so like i said the size is one thing you should consider now another thing you should consider is the technology stack so microservices should be built using appropriate technologies and framework uh, like i said during my introduction a developer is not one a software engineer is not one who is tied to a language a software engineer is okay i didn't say that sorry i'm saying it now okay it's not tied to a language a software engineering yeah i'll put more light to it a software engineering engineer rather is one who engineers a software the word software engineering is from both software and engineering so what does it do he engineers a, a, a software it's not a programmer sorry it's not a coder or a programmer a coder is somebody you tell just like a, a bricklayer it's just like a bricklayer you know the real deal in building building a house is the architect draws the plan and gives it to then he begins to call maybe i don't know who calls the bricklayers and all there are some laborers that carry bump on their head some of them carry blocks some of them carry the bricks so those guys that write the code they are like the the laborers but the guy that thinks about the best solution the best practice how the system should be designed what language should use and the rest yeah so that guy is doing the engineering part of it right so um the 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 person that codes that writes the code may not necessarily understand the entirety of what he's building he just understands mm. just knows that what he's supposed to do yeah mm. he's that he's supposed to do a login app login function this guy knows that he's supposed to create a function for a a a, a, a module for account opening this guy so that guy knows that is supposed to create a module for debiting customers but the architect or the engineer the software engineer uh, the architect rather yeah you know, he sits back although they are not the same the software engineer is, is not exactly the same similar to an architecture uh, a software architect so he sits back he understands the full picture the architect understands the full picture of what is being built and is able to bring in team members to come up and and build this you understand yeah thank you yeah so not done so when we talk about technology stack now the reason why you consider technology stack is um you may have a single project that you are building 
the single product you're building. Now, like I said, a software engineer is not tied to any language. Should not be tied to a language. I must use this language to solve this problem. So you can, you know, due to the advent of microservices, you can use about five languages to build one project. Yeah, yeah. you can combine multiple languages. So if you have a section of your application that deals with maybe artificial intelligence, you may want to consider Python there. So you have a section of your application that you are considering a high level of security and you feel that Java will give you that, you may want to use that there. If you have a section of your application that you feel that maybe, oh, Golang is better, so you can you may want to use it there. So like I said to you, one of the disadvantages of microservices is your development strength. Like somebody that does not have a does not have good development strength, is not able to do those diversification. Although that, but that does not mean that that's not the best way to do it actually. So microservices gives you this flexibility of languages, different languages, best languages for different individual tasks, right? Because actually there are no best languages. They're only best languages for particular tasks. So you cannot say Java is better than Python, Python is better than Java, JavaScript is better than Java. No, each of these languages, they were created for a reason. So, and they have, yeah, they have their strength and they have their weaknesses, right? So yeah, that's that about the technology stack. Another thing you would consider is the communication, right? My microservices should be able to communicate with one another because if they're not able to communicate with one another, then there's, there's actually no points. It's no longer a microservice. It's now a service independent. <laughs> it's just a service running on its own. Because so a microservice should have it a, a, a predefined interface through which they can communicate with one another. And what is an interface? An interface is like a, is a it's two parties on a way to implement certain stuffs that is certain things so interface just gives you just like a contract that tells you that this is the way you should do this an example is api you see api application programming interface it tells uh, the developer if you are consuming an inter uh, an api so there's a contract which is your payload that tells you how you should consume this service right so yeah. that also is a contract then you have uh, interfaces in programming maybe you are doing object-oriented languages same thing okay. we talk about interface there so an interface is just a contract that binds two or more parties to implement in a particular a particular way you understand so communication is king for is key rather for um, microservices and um, you must ensure that a change to one set microservice do not break the other microservice. Like I said mm. before, the microservice mm. must independent. They must work independently. Like a failure in one should not cascade, should not uh, uh, lead to the failure of another. The other guys, so they, they all have where they are picking uh, requests from. So it could be from a message broker, right? So this service is running on its own, completing its, its own task. It will tidy its task and finish it. The other services picks up from where that other one has stopped, or where that one the, maybe service A, service B, service C. Service A runs, completes its task, commits that changes. 
time for it to run it picks up the task the available data for him that he has at that point he runs and complete that changes so it fails to run right this service a fails only the tasks that are available for service b those are the services those are the going to perform you understand hello? yeah i guess yeah. i'm hello. with you okay yeah so another thing is uh, uh it's quite long i'll just talk about one more which is data ownership okay. right microservices that, yeah you should have a clear ownership of data that they manage right this will this could help in reducing the complexity of data management and ensure that the data is consistent and reliable so when you talk about consistency of data you're talking about uh, data being the same so and a good instance will be that um you have process a service a you know after service a service b service c Service A is working on a particular um, task. Service A should know its own task that it's performing and it should perform only that task. So when Service A has updated a particular data, that data should be updated across all services, right? And how can it be an, uh, updated across all services? That is only when a microservice has a that leads to another point what they call a single source of truth yeah a single source of truth that is where all the services can confirm the data or get data from yeah so the data must be consistent and must be reliable when it's a single source of truth and that data is consistent and reliable I think I will end uh, there because of time. Okay, thank you so much. That was actually elaborate. Uh, it's, it's actually a sense that microservices is not a small game here. Thank you so much for that question, that first question. So, um, but while you were explaining the key factors to consider when making these decisions, I actually. Um, that will uh, prompt me to ask the next question because as a key factor. So um, when it comes to communication and coordination, how do you ensure that microservices communicate effectively with each other without creating unnecessary dependencies? Okay. And alongside, I would want you to share um the tools or technology that can be used to facilitate this aspect communication and coordination within microservices okay yeah so uh, in a way when i explained the previous one i think i've done a level of explanation to this already but i'll go over them the ones and I'll add some other things to it so um an effective communication and coordination between microservices it's actually very important for building a robust and scalable microservices architecture. So some of the strategies that we can use, um, uh, one of it is to use a well-defined interface. You know, I talked about an interface. Uh, yeah. First question, I've given the background of what an interface is. So each microservices should have a well-defined interface. 
that you know what that interface should have you should specify how it communicates with other microservices right so it's a contract that states how micro uh, service a talks to service b service b talks to service c and the rest now, you know what this will help you to do to help you reduce dependency and ensure that changes to one microservice do not break the other service why because there's an agreed contract already it's not a, a fact uh, you know don't know if you're familiar with blockchain so you have um erc20 erc20 being a uh, a it's like a contract that binds everybody that is building a token to implement yeah. you're building an erc2 token to implement certain interface so that anybody any exchange you are using that token you are able to um that, that, that it will be accessible and it will be usable there, right? So we are talking about you are talking about a well-defined interface. So also we are talking about a microservice. You should have a well-defined interface in which anybody, no matter the change you want to make to your microservice, you should know that any change you make to it must definitely obey this interface contract that have been put in place. I don't know if you understand. I guess so. Yeah, so another thing, another thing you can consider is to use a lightweight protocol. Yeah, microservices should use a lightweight protocol such as um, you have G gRPC and um, you have REST. REST is what is very, very uh, common to all of us. Uh, that's representational states, uh, uh, stateful service, right? So yeah. you use a REST protocol for communication. These protocols are, are very easy to implement and can help you reduce overhead of communication because for instance you see a rest service is just a the body is just a an array of is it yeah a json a json object it just takes a json right you pass your request into the json uh, maybe so it, it, not necessarily a json it could be also it could also be passed on the header so it depends on the kind of request you are sending if you are sending a get request yeah you want to pass that data on the header if you are sending a, a post or a put yeah you want to pass it in the body as a json object yeah so if you use a lightweight protocol such as rest it helps you to reduce um, overhead of communication so it helps the services communicate effectively yeah Another thing you would want to consider is to implement a, what they call a circuit breaker. Yeah, what is circuit breaker? Yeah, a circuit breaker, just like in physics, circuit breaker. So what a circuit breaker does is that it helps to prevent cascading failures when, when one microservice fails. So when one microservice fails, right, it, 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 they call it... Um, fail fast yeah it fails fast he, when a service fails it does not it, it does not need the other services do not also do not need to fail so if the service is, fa is failing only that service will be failing the other services will keep working as they ought to be working do you understand yeah so what this yeah, will do it will help to ensure that the system remains stable and available you know when it's consistent uh, when it's consistent failure because you know another thing that people do which uh, is to do a retry 
for instance here you have a a system a service that is running and maybe for one reason or the other maybe the database was not reachable and it fails that's when we talk about um, um fault tolerance systems yeah so for fault tolerance system you have a system that is running and maybe it fails for one reason or the other so what you do at that point is you can do maybe a retry so if your system does not have a circuit breaker you will keep doing a retry maybe service a is failing and this failure cascades to service B. Do you know what happens? The old, your old service is now unavailable to everybody. Yeah. Understand? If there is a failure, a consistent failure in one service, it's only that service that is affected. That's it. Then another thing you would uh, want to to look into is uh, implement service discovery. So what service discovery does is that is it helps you to locate and communicate with microservices so different services like microservices that are deployed they are usually deployed together maybe in a, a container so when you deploy these services these services uh, this service discovery helps these services to communicate with one another to know which of the services are available which one is not available right so with um, the help of a service discovery and I think one 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 thing like what one thing we use in java is um, we use eureka so eureka server so you're able to know okay this particular it gives you the list of all the services that that are deployed and it tells you their states so some of the technology you can use uh you can use console c-o-n-s-u-l and there's another one called zookeeper you want to look at it later or you can also use kubernetes yeah which is yeah. kubernetes that's also. Familiar with yeah kubernetes. yes no i said i'm familiar with that okay okay so kubernetes can also be used to implement service discovery yeah yeah so another thing you want to consider um, is the use of api gateways yes api gateways so what are api gateways API gateways are, are like a, an entry point for APIs. So what API gateway can help you do is to centralize communication between microservices and provide a unified interface to external clients. So like I said, it's an entry point. Uh, it helps, it's like, since it's an entry point, there is a single point of entry, which is the API gateway. So this can help you to simplify the communication and reduce the complexity of the system. When everybody is coming through the API gateway, authentication is done there and every other thing that you need to do is done there. So you're able to go into the system. So in summary, yeah, in summary, the key to use a lightweight protocol, the key rather is to use a lightweight protocol, a well-defined interface like I've spoken about and um, um what did i talk about again implementing service discovery using api gateway i've spoken api gateway already. okay yeah so using tools and technologies yeah. as a circuit breaker service discovery and api gateway can help uh, can help you to facilitate communication and coordination between services i don't know if um, my explanation so far is clear and answers your question correctly. very clear very clear thank you Okay, um, sorry, but um, you when you were actually um, 
mentioning the stone, right? Um, yeah. I don't know if that was like, if you can just like, in a way, um, this them just for um, our listeners to refer back to them. If I, if I can list them, the tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, the tools you use for service discovery. Yeah, you have console, you have Zookeeper, C O N S U L. Okay. Yeah, you have Zookeeper. Zookeeper and you. Kubernetes. Yes, Kubernetes. Okay. Thank you so much. Business um, mm. on data management. How do you manage data in? microservices architecture okay um okay managing data in microservice architecture can be quite challenging especially when there are multiple services that need to access the same data you know um you talk about um what they call it in i think i'm trying to remember the word uh seems to have skipped my head okay but however like i said data uh, because take for instance what i'm trying i'm trying to use the exact word i don't know if it's deadlock so when a resource is being used normally the way the computer works when a resource is being used right so you have resource a no let me say you have yeah resource a you have user a and user b and you have resource a now user a wants to use resource b resource a rather and user B also wants to use that same resource. Now, the first to take hold of that resource begins to work on it. Then when the other user tries to use it, he's not able to access it. Or maybe both of them will now decide to modify the system at the same time. Okay, yeah, I once had an application that I built. Not, okay, I didn't build it. Bank, yeah, where I worked had an application i will not be very specific as to the things but it's a very critical system for okay. i don't know if it's a very good example since i'm on air but we no you can you can share we had two processes modifying the same data what it now led to it led to a very very serious issue until we went started investigating we now realized that um the person that implemented it was using concurrency, was using con- concurrent action, picking the same request and trying to assign them. So we're now assigning one one um, resource to two people, two users. So for a banking system, you know how that will be because two different users having access to the same the same um, data. So there will be there will be lots of problems. So when these things are not properly managed, yeah, properly manage your services, yeah, then data, your data will be messed up and could lead to lots of um, credibility and even lots of money, yeah, yeah. So some of the best okay. practices. Yeah, best practices for ensuring consistency and reliability when multiple services need to access the same data. 
Okay, yeah. This practice will be, I think I've said it before, using a single source of truth. Yeah. have one source of truth so all your data should be should have been uh, should be unified at a particular source and that source is called a particular point and that point is called the source of truth one way to ensure the consistency and reliability is to use a single source of truth for each data entity so for each data that you are passing you need to use uh, your each data that you are trying to assess, supposed to assess it from a particular. Is that? Um, hello. I can hear you. So okay, yeah. So a microservice is responsible for managing the data entity. How? Do, what do I mean? When you have a request you have passed or you are trying to access a particular data or a data is being updated by one service that um, other services that want to access that data should be able to access the updated data you understand i don't know if you understand is it clear i get you they should be able to op- yeah. um access the updated data yes so even if it is within split seconds so you must have a, a single source of truth where all data data will be accessed from. So that is one way you can ensure um, consistency and reliability. Another thing is to um, use caching. Now, why do we cache data? We cache data to improve performance and to reduce the load on the database. So there are some data that you really do not need often, like, sorry, really do not change often maybe just once in a while it, um, i'm trying to see some example of um, such um, data uh, maybe uh, pictures like the way the browser works normally the normal browser web browser it caches images into your local storage so that when you are sorry the first time you visit the website is the browser caches those images yeah, into your local storage so that the subsequent time you are coming to visit it, it just picks that, um, it picks from that cache and renders it for you. So in that case, it is faster. So you can use caching, the caching technique for, um, what they call it? You can use caching technique for your data. And um, one of the problems with caching will be that uh, since caching is holding on to an old data or a data that is not from the source of truth which is the database what will happen is there's a problem of you using an outdated data now that is the reason why sometimes you have made some changes and your browser keep rendering um, the, the old one so what do you do at that point you go and reset your cache but in a system, in a microservice architecture, you cannot just go and set your cache. So the way you implement it matters. So one of the best way, the best way to implement it is um, like some people actually use they actually use Redis. Redis is a a cache DB that people store uh, just cache because and Redis is very very fast. 
so for authentication of people use redis to cache their uh, user credential for validation and once that's validated it passes on to the next phase then one of the best way you could do this so that you do not have issue with outdated data is anytime there's an update on a particular data what you do you update the redis db also you understand mm-hmm. whenever there's an update or there's an insert into your database you are supposed to also to perform that operation on the redis so once well if there's a select if you are trying to select from a db since every update is or actually um, what do i call it also implemented on the redis db means that all the data on the master the major the main db is uh, correct and accurate because it's not everything that is on the um what they call actual db the major main db that will be on the redis db an example of data you can actually you can um you can put on a cache db are like maybe messages so those data that do not change if somebody has sent you a message five years ago the message is still the message right it does not change you will not the person will not go and change the message he has sent you five years ago so you see that this um, google will be doing a lot doing a lot of caching because nobody will go and uh, nobody will go and on send you a message that they have sent to you before it's only you maybe you can set to delete it and the rest so when you do an update a delete operation when you are writing your code what you're supposed to do is also update your redis so that it's it has the most updated data i don't know if you understand what i have to explain Hmm? i do understand you you don't understand i understand Okay. okay so um another way you can ensure consistency is um using event-driven architecture yeah using what event-driven architecture can you can you say that again events-driven mm-hmm. architecture Okay, events driven architecture okay yeah so an event driven architecture can help to reduce uh to help to sorry to decouple microservices and improve the how it scales that scalability so what it can help you decouple to um, break microservices into bits right so instead of requesting data from other services Microservices can subscribe to events and update their own data accordingly. Uh, I don't know if you uh, if you know of any um, event-driven uh, architectural tool. You can have things like Kafka, RabbitMQ. So, uh, yeah, a very good example of how it works is so you can have maybe you can have something like a pub and sub event a publisher and a subscriber sure. so a publisher, a publisher is one who, are, who is posting a message to the event that is it's putting an information on that uh, uh, message broker or or that is publishing an event so a subscriber is somebody that is pulling that um, data that is trying to assess that data that is being passed a good very very good and close example that we'll see is tracking 
So if you are familiar with Uber, Bokada, boats and the rest. Yeah. So you discover that when the rider is coming towards you, you'll be seeing his movement as he's being up the as you see you'll be seeing him come closer to you. When he's going when the driver is moving actually you just see the guy as he's moving, right? Yeah. So what 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 how does that work? The there's a like a a pub and sub event going on on the background. What's happening is that the driver is publishing his current location as he moves. And there is a trigger from his own mobile application that publishes his um, current location as he keeps moving. It's being published. Now, your, from your own device, there is a service running on the background that is subscri- that subscribed to that driver's events that is publishing. So as the driver is publishing this event, the subscriber is pulling, is getting that as he has subscribed to that event, he's being updated by every move that the driver makes. So he gets all the data. That's how you see since when you update one, you see the car move on the app. I don't know if you understand. If it's yeah, very clear. Yeah, that's how the pop and sub event works. Understand? Yeah, not, you. Okay. Yes, yes. So, yeah, another thing you could do is uh, implement data versioning, right? Yeah, data, data versioning. versioning. Yes, version. So data versioning can help to ensure the changes to data are tracked and can be rolled back if necessary. I'm sure you're quite familiar with um, Git, Git, yeah, GitHub, Bitbucket. Mercuria, what they call it again. So, what that helps you do is that's for that is for programming, right? When you are writing your code, you're able to. I'm just trying to bring it into ways you can understand it very well. So, when you're writing your code, you do your commit, you do your git hard and your commit. So, what your commit does, it creates different, um, in this case. Not necessarily version, but in this case, it creates different versions or different um, checkpoints. Yeah, different checkpoints in your journey of development, which you can always roll back to. So also, when in microservices, you should have you should uh, fashion your data. So each each microservices can maintain its own version of the data and, and update the, the version number when changes are made. So an example, you have a just like your release you have a version one maybe you have done a minor change you can maybe do a 1.1.2 and like that so there are different um, versions on your a single microservice that you have um, maybe implemented so the reason for that is you do not throw away the old version Probably tomorrow there is a failure. Maybe you have pushed a new version and that version is now giving problem. You can easily what roll back to it. Understand? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in summary, um, what I would say the key to managing data in microservice architecture, yeah, it will be is to is rather is to help you implement like uh, what am i saying 
yeah it, it is used to create a single uh, source of truth one you, you you also try as much as possible to use event driven architecture when necessary not it's not compulsory you use it but when it is necessary it's good to use it you also implement um, data versioning so that um, when you need to roll back you have something to roll back to thank you so much i I have also actually learned because i really don't know much on microservices so this is actually um high opening i can see on how microservices actually work so um but you know when it comes to this microservice routine there are always you made mention of errors like when you when you wanted to cite an example yeah so um this is this will um bring me to the next question that is relating to errors and failure so how do you design a microservices to and failure okay uh designing microservices to handle errors and failures yeah now one thing that i've learned over the years writing codes is building an application that works is not usually the problem right from my experience some people may want okay. to argue that but i'm very confident of that statement building an application that works is not usually the problem well, how your application be- behaves when there's an error or when there's a failure that is where the problem lies yeah because for every application you build you must have a very very good um error handling technique otherwise it will your application will just you know one one single failure all these success could give you so much but a single failure can cost you your company can cost you the entire system right so it is very necessary to design um, microservices to undo errors so uh, how do you design microservices that is able to undo errors and failure gracefully yeah so one of the ways you can do it is to critically build a robust and fault tolerant system you know i spoke i talked about a fault tolerant system um, before and what is a fault tolerant system a fault tolerant system is a system that is able to undo faults or undo failures on its own without the intervention of a third party right mm. yeah so for example i have i'm calling a service hmm? and that service is failing now what should be done there are many many ways you can solve that problem one of the way is to maybe make use of a load balancer if you make use of a load balancer when, when a service is down or a service is, is overwhelmed with lots of yeah the requests are divided evenly across other services that are available you understand so yeah. the, the service that is down if you are calling directly to it you are calling a, a specific service uh, because we had that issue we also had in some of the systems i've worked on 
and we had lots of failures coming to a particular system so what we create several instances of that same system because that system is very very important and lots of people across nigeria across africa are calling that service so we needed to um, look for a way to make this application scale so what we did was to increase the number of instances and deploy these systems on a load balancer so the load balancer was very very helpful what it does is that it distributes the loads across the the services and um, different many of them they are able to treat the service these different instances are treating different requests but one of these advantages we noticed is that um, tracing particular transactions take for instance uh, the customer has maybe somebody has done something and you you want to see the log of that request so what you have to do now what do you do you have to pull the log of all the different instances and begin to check although there are tools that you could actually use to to what they call um to bring together all the logs and search so but it all depends on how you actually implement or how you deploy this solution yeah so i would start with one i've explained so much yeah i think mean, i don't know if this is listing on the necessary but let me just do it anyways so one of the ways you can um uh, undo failures right undo what do you call it again is handling failures and faults yeah, 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 it's the use of retries. I think I've mentioned retries. retries. Yes. Okay. So retries can be used to handle uh, transient errors, as errors that happen when you are working. <laughs> Sorry, such as That's network fair. timeouts. Now, when there's a network timeout, you can use a retry, or when it's a database error, you can use a retry. However. There should be a limit to the number of times that your system should retry. Otherwise, you've had cases whereby you impl- yeah, somebody implemented a retry. The system keeps retrying one particular request and is not able to pick up other requests because somebody has implemented retry the wrong way. So you you may want to say, okay, you can only you, you will only retry for times or you can come back after five hours and retry you understand yeah yes no yeah so another thing you can use is a timeout so now when you uh, make a request right so timeout can be used to prevent a microservice from waiting indefinitely for a response from another microservice how do you do this say for instance you call a service a calls service b Service B, service A does not have a timeout. Hmm? And service B is busy serving other requests. Service A keeps waiting oh, for that request, keeps waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Probably eventually it fails. But service um, B has wasted lots of time. Maybe on the average, it can take 10 seconds to treat a particular request. But when service B does not have a timeout, service B could wait for 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 five minutes before he finally fails maybe service A not tell him that I don't have this thing you are looking for and it will fail 
So in that case, for, for such cases, you need to have um, set a timeout. What is a timeout? A timeout is a time given in, I think it depends, it can be given in milliseconds, it can be given, given in seconds of how long a service should wait or a request should wait for a response. Right? So some people put 30 seconds that after 30 seconds if you do not have any request a response then return uh, a failure and a very good example of a timeout in a real life scenario is i sent you i said okay uh go to my house knock on the door and help me bring my uh, my my khaki somebody will answer yeah i give my khaki yes yeah, somebody will answer when the person tell the person to give you my khaki so you knocked on my door and i told you that if after five minutes you do not you are, you, you you are not back i would not be there again i would have maybe taken over or something so what you would do you go to my door you knock you tell this person to bring my khaki the person goes in it is five minutes the person is not yet out what now I've, what have i done i've set a timeout of five minutes so if after five minutes this person is not done what do you do what are you supposed to do i'm supposed to leave abandon that request and come back and give me a failure response that is what timeout yeah. does you understand wow. so yeah. it, it abandons the request it does not go ahead with the request so even if the person finally sends a success response later has abandoned that request so that request will not be treated you understand so just like you having a wedding you have a wedding for five for maybe 10 9 9 a.m and your wedding gown is not with you until 9 a.m what would you have done you would have already looked for an alternative so you have abandoned that request you have made to that that whoever is supposed to deliver that uh, dress or whatever so that's how um timeout works i don't know if, if it is clear very clear i'm enjoying this actually okay <laughs> so um another thing you can do is implement a fallback mechanism right by a fallback mechanism we say a fallback mechanism can be, can be used to provide an alternative response when a microservice is unavailable for example microservice can return a cached response or a default response sometimes you go to a website and you see some funny funny response yeah, it tells you um, some people will tell you that oh please try again later network error some people will tell you that uh, if you see chat gpt error sometimes when you use chat gpt it will tell you that um, that GPT is currently busy. I don't know if you have seen some of this funny stuff that ChatGPT writes. Yeah, they're fine. <laughs> yeah. so those are those are what they call um, a fallback um, response. So it is you controlling your error messages. So technically, it may be coming as an error message, but you now controlling your error messages to what you actually want your users to see. You can make it more friendly. You can put a default. If this service, just the same thing you do, try catch. When you catch the exception, you put this particular um, message back to the to the user. Yeah. 
as a fallback mechanism right another thing you can do is to monitor your log so you use uh, monitoring and logging right so monitoring and logging can help to detect errors and and failures and provide insight into the root cause now when you set up monitoring your system uh, when you monitor your your when you set up monitoring your microservices you are able to when you say monitoring and logs right because one of the ways you can easily detect the source of failure from a system or a, an application is by logging although you must be careful not to log sensitive information right because the same logging that is used for um, monitoring or um, solving failures in systems can be used by hackers to hack into your system also right so when an hacker is able to get hold of your log what it does is sniffs it scans through your log for some specific words that is able to maybe you'll be able to find um, some certain sensitive information that it can use against you right this information that we are, we are logging right can be used to improve the overall system yeah you saying something no i said okay i'm listening yeah this information that you are um you are logging or you are monitoring can be used to over, uh, sorry to improve the overall system and provide similar errors from uh, i'm sorry i'm prevent rather so it will prevent similar errors from occurring in the future so we'll take for instance you have an error right and you found it on the log that's the reason why sometimes it's good to log some errors do not log errors that will give away your database credential or that will give away your database type that you're using because some some very very some information that you think they are minute they are not significant they are actually significant when a an archive is able to tell the kind of query uh, database you are using mm -hmm. it's a problem mm. it's, it, that information alone may not be a problem but he has where to start from he knows that okay these guys use MSSQL mm -hmm. so he's able to check what are the vulnerability of MSSQL now if you do not use a parameterized query showing you are using you're not using parameterized query you're using normal select straight up you're not parameterizing your query the guy is able to see oh this guy is not parameterizing his query it can actually add some things to your query so there are times where you can use sql injection maybe you pass some funny characters into the text field and wow you have access to the whole thing so in as much as logging is important, you must be careful as to what information you are logging, right? So lastly, I will just talk about briefly the implementing fault isolation, right? So fault isolation can, can help to prevent a failure in one microservices, right? Microservice rather, from bringing down the entire system. So what do we mean? By isolating each microservice, you can reduce the impact of failure and limit the scope of the problem. Now, remember I, I earlier I said 
microservices must be small, right? The services must be small. And um, I, I didn't mention um, I cohesion. Now I'm going to talk about cohesion. So cohesion has to be do with um, how relevant two things are. So everything that you should put inside a microservice should be highly cohesive, cohesive, right? So when they are highly cohesive, it means they are highly related. So when you are able to, um, so if you have highly co- cohesive um, microservices, it will be easy for you to implement a fault isolation. So when one micro, if there's a failure, if you say your customer are complaining that they're not seeing notification, you know where the problem is coming from, right? If the customers are saying they are not able to create accounts, you will not go. You will not be checking the what they call. You will not be checking the notification service because people are not able to create accounts. You understand mm-hmm. why? Because the microservices, in microservice architecture, these things are distributed evenly according to their how they relate to one another. These services are built separately sorry deployed uh, independent of one another so that's all about um that's all i have to say about error you know fault tolerance if you know if that suits your question yes that's actually the question i i got insight into more though thank you very much for elaborating on that so um we move to deployment and scaling. How do you deploy and scale microservices effectively alongside the tools that help in automating the deployment? Okay, um, I think I spoke about deploying microservices. That it can be one of the disadvantage of using microservices. Yeah. It's not like microservices is bad. I'm not pointing. I've not said it's bad. I said it's good. Well, it's not in all cases you use it, right? So deploying and scaling microservices can be complex. Yeah, it can be challenging. But there are several uh, practices you could uh, use to help you with that. Uh, one of the one of them is the use of containers, right? So you're familiar with containers. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with containers. Containers. Yeah. Uh, like uh, like the word container, they help packaging all the dependency that you need in an application you're deploying. So they are all contained inside a container and shipped from one phase from development to production and the rest. Now, one of the usefulness of container is, you know, there's this general saying with developers. Ah, it was working on my computer, but it's not working again. <laughs> yeah. Like, I look out, I don't know where I just seen it. I get that. Yeah. So when you, yeah. you do not have such problems, why? Because you are moving the entire dependency. So even if you are using maybe that could cause that maybe the versions. Take for instance, if you are a Java developer. And you're using Java 8 on your local, you now deploy depending on Java 17. Java 17 is not backward compatible with Java 8 or Java even Java 11. It will not work. 
so um you may be having some of this problem so what the container does is that it ships all the dependency you are using for the application in your local ships it to your wherever you're deploying it so it's just like you're taking your computer you know like your computer like i say it was working on before yes yeah. like you're taking that computer into the client go and use it that's how the docker works yeah wow so yeah containers can help to package microservices and their dependencies so that is uh and these containers right you can use you can do some orchestration uh, orchestration using kubernetes right the kubernetes can be used to manage and scale these containers across multiple yeah so you can have um, you can implement your continuous integration and continuous deployment and the rest yeah another thing you could do is to use yeah yeah like what i just said the pipeline continuous delivery pipeline what it does is that it automates the deployment of microservices and ensures that each services each service rather is tested and validated before being deployed to production now when you talk about continuous delivery and continuous deployments con- continuous integration rather and continuous deployment yeah this, there was a problem with um what the waterfall model so i think this came up with when you talk about the agile methodology of development so um what, rather devops is very very closely related to devops now of development and operation so there was a problem in project delivery and you see the developer is you know maybe you start from requirement gathering you see maybe the ba is gathering requirement for the system what would you do developer is sleeping at that point what is the tester doing? He's sleeping at that point, right? Then the, the, with his work, he gives it to the developer or whoever. Maybe the developer is working at this point. What is the BA doing at that time? And, or let's even leave the BA. What is the tester doing at that time? And what are the okay. development team doing at that time, right? Maybe they are sleeping. So, but continuous integration and continuous deployment, we are talking about, um, all these faces working together as one so this all this team can be working concurrently while the tester is building scripts to test this application the development team maybe they are preparing also the scripts for deploying the application so all these things these scripts can be written in one right and as the developer is building they are auto, there, there is an automated test to test these things that is building so the testing the and the deployments are done all once through a pipeline. So um, <clears throat> the, the the continuous delivery pipeline, like I said before, it it's it helps to sorry I'm being distracted. <laughs> it helps to ensure that the deployment of a microservice is tested and validated before it's being deployed to production right then i we spoke about the service um, discovery before 
service discovery also can also be used for a, th a thing such as this then um, we look at horizontal scaling yeah what is when you talk about horizontal scaling what do you mean so are you talking about the horizon or what horizontal scaling can be used to increase the capacity of a microservice by adding more instances of the service i don't know if you can remember what this relates to i think this this will relate to um when i spoke about the the load balancers yeah, yeah, when you create you create multiple instances of uh, of a service. Yeah, that's what you are doing there, you are scaling horizontally. Now this can be automated using a microservice that's the horizontal scale scaling can be automated using a microservice. Sorry, can what am I it can be um, automated using a container orchestration platform such as um, okay. kubernetes so the container orchestration platform is what kubernetes yeah you can you, the the horizontal scaling can be so you can just um you can go you can automatically scale an example is i'll give an example an example is you have one service running and the number of requests that are coming for that service is now becoming overwhelming right yeah. with um, with um, kubernetes the system is able to scale by itself is able to replicate itself into two different instances right and balance these requests against these uh, individual instances so that the response time will be faster that is that is what you when, when, when that that's also the term we use for auto scaling hello i can hear you so that, that, that's what you use when you talk about auto scaling that's how it works so horizontal scaling and auto scaling horizontal scaling is you, you increasing the the capacity of microservices of microservice by adding more instance manually right then auto scaling the service by itself is able to increase the number of um, instances of of that services so that it can perform better thank you that explanation uh so um more like our last question on security and compliance. How do you ensure that microservices are secure and comply with relevant regulations and standards? Security and compliance, right. Um, security and compliance are very important, actually. Uh, one of the things you do yeah for every system that is built there's a need for authentication and authorization now first of all authentication and authorization can help to control the access to microservices and ensure that 
only authorized users and services can access sensitive data or functionality. Now, before I go further, I would like to explain what authentication is and what authorization is. Authentication, right, is simply means that you are who you say you are. Okay. Right. Then authorization tells you what you can do and what you cannot do. So in every system, when you impute your username and your password, that's an identification that it does authentication to to validate who you are. Then authorization is to validate what you can do and what you cannot do. So on that application or that services, I mean yes, on that service on that application right so you know you as a as a, as a normal user you may be able to visit, visit some certain page a normal user should not be able to visit your admin dashboard because if a normal yeah. user is able to visit it then there will be problem right because anybody that has access to your admin dashboard has automatically become the yeah, a, maybe a shareholder in your company. knows <laughs> <laughs> how the management runs. So yeah, yeah. The, guy, the guy can decide to lock you out of your system tomorrow. <laughs> so some of the tools, the protocols you can use is OAuth too. Yeah, you can OAuth. use um, two-factor authentication. You can use not necessarily OAuth two is fine. You can use OpenID. OpenID. Open ID connects to implement authentication and authorization. Uh, those are the two um, some of the tools you can use. Another thing you can do to ensure sec- um, to ensure security and compliance is to use data, right? Yeah, yeah. Like one one obvious thing I'm going to say is encrypting users' password. Now, it is very, very important that if you are performing authentication, right, you use, you authenticate your, you and your user's password and any sensitive information you may have on your. Now, the encryption of user's password I'm talking about here is not a two way hashing or something. You are looking at a, a one way hashing algorithm. Right. Example is Bcrypt. You know the way Bcrypt works. Yeah, your yeah. your encryption must be very strong. I don't know if you have heard about Caesar Cipher. Um, no, not kind of mm? One time pass and some other ones like that. And maybe MD5. MD5 is relatively very weak. So, but you maybe a combination of. MT5, no, you must consider Bcrypt. So Bcrypt is a one-way hashing algorithm. How does it work? Each time you hash a word, hmm? if for instance I hash hero, now it will give me one hash. If I hash hero again, it will give me another hash entirely. It does not give me no, the same hash. Yeah, it changes. 
or the system is able to when you provide a password all you will do is able to compare two ashes if they match so it does not decrypt it it just if you want to authenticate you take your password again and ash it right the system will now check if the two ashes work but in your physical eye these two ashes do not match but the machine the computer is able to calculate and check if they actually uh, match so uh, that is for sensitive data on your on your computer yeah one thing you could use is you could use the ss ssl or the tls to encrypt data in transcript in transit right you can use ssl or the tsl you may want to use a https protocol rather than http also so anything what is it no i mean the https or security yes yeah then um, you may also want to consider rsa rsa uh, encryption and um what delphi airman delphi human encryption algorithm some of these encryption algorithm are used in telegram whatsapp for end-to-end encryption yeah one of the thing that whatsapp uses for end-to-end encryption they use um i think it's delphi elman encryption algorithm either delphi elman or rsa i think it's delphi elman yeah that's what they use for their end-to-end encryption algorithm so you may want to use some of this very very secure algorithm and um, encryption algorithm because some encryption algorithm that you may want to use you know something like md5 right because the ash doesn't change so if i ask your name in md5 if i ask it again it will give so what people have done is that they they have created a library of a library of ashes so that if somebody is looking for a particular ash you can brute force that library i don't know if i'm making sense you can put for the library to search for specific words. If, if, for instance, if I have a library of ashes, I will have one that's IROH. Now, if I brute force my library of ashes, I'll be able to see which which uh, ash IROH. If if I get the um, rather the ashed ashed um, key or the ashed value of your password. I'll be able to pick that hash value and compare against the real world to know the password that you have stored against that hash. I don't know, like I, I'm not explaining well. You are. Okay. From my own okay. point of view, yes, okay. you are. Yeah, so that's uh, that's fine. Another thing you could do is to use the least privilege. An example is you have a service. Hmm? All the service does is select from database. Do not give that service. Do not give. Now you have a service that select from database. You could. You may want to create a user for that service on your DB. And all the permission that user will have is to select and not update. Hmm. If all your services, regardless of their needs, right? as access as root access to your database 
if somebody is able to get a lot of then that is all for your service so for your application because building can bring down your database so you may want to use the least um, permission possible for understand yeah so what thank you how can this list help you this privilege can help you to minimize the risk of security breaches by ensuring that each service and user has as I said before the minimum privileges necessary to perform its function okay. it's the, the the smallest privilege that a what they call it a service needs to perform its own operation that is what you should give to it so some tools you can use is kubernetes um, role-based access control rbac to implement list privilege so this is not talking about um, database level now at all it's talking about uh, your microservices right yeah so um one more thing I'll talk about is um, the use of monitoring and logging, which we have spoken about before. Monitoring and logging can help to detect and diagnose um, security incidents in real time. So when you are consistently monitoring and logging your um, performing log logs on your application, you can you can diagnose um, security incidents as they are happening. You understand so by monitoring key metrics such as login attempts so if somebody is trying to log into your database you can you may want to monitor all those activities you may even want to set um, some some rules as to how many times somebody is able to attempt to log in to your application within a specific period of time take for instance somebody attempted to log into your system right 10 times within milliseconds you will know that this person or maybe is able to he attempted to log into your application five times within milliseconds you will know that this is not a this is not a real user it must be a robot so one of the things you could do is to blacklist that person's ip yeah so those are the little little things you would want to check in your your application right so that's when you are monitoring when you are performing monitoring that's when you can do all these things so your api usage how people are using it because yeah how people are using your api how much failures how much success and the rest then you should also try to um you can detect and respond to security incidents quickly if you are performing monitoring. So if, you know, one of the best ways to tackle insecurity, right? One of the best way, you know, yeah, insecurity is to avoid it. Mm. So today, systems are being built to foresee failures to foresee incidents and stop them before they happen 
your system will not be uploaded for from recovering it's good your system is able to recover from failure but if your system take think about it your system is able to foresee fail failures and is able to avoid it so which will you prefer a system that's able to foresee failures and avoid it or a system that's able to enter into failure and recover from it they are both good yeah but the one that foresees better yeah so thank you thank you so much an awesome session with you i don't know if you have a general uh say to the listeners that actually listening to you on best practices to designing microservices you have like a general thing to say okay so generally i would say microsoft like i said from the beginning i think i have something very very different to say I would say um, microservices is not a one-fit-all solution because we are not robots. We are humans. We are developers. So what we should do is, what we always do is find find the best possible tool or best possible way to solve the problem we have at hand. So before you jump into any technology, before you jump into any architecture, you may want to check in what case or what scenario is this best used for right mm. yeah. yeah you want you may you do well to check it and also ensure that you even when you're not building microservices then i think you should write your classes and your methods like microservices mm. such that your class, like I said, should have a single reason, like the single responsibility principle, your class or your function should have just one reason to change. When you begin to, when you have a need, this is just generally programming in general. When you have a need to name your function and you feel that for you to to properly name your function, you, you have to put and then you know you have used an elaborate function when your function is taking too many parameters you know you have built something else your your function should take very minimal parameter maybe like three so when your function begins to take more than that then you may want to check what you are doing there right when your function your function also should not be too long your function is very very long then you may want to check what you are doing there when you are finding it difficult to name your your function in or your class you may want to check what you are doing there and i also urge you guys to try as much as possible to write clean codes you know i read one book and the guy wrote something he said write your code as if the person that will maintain it is a maniac uh, a maniac yeah a maniac that knows the address to your house so i don't know maybe i maybe i'll have to explain it but they said it is said that when a joke needs to be explained then something is wrong with it yeah so, i actually get what you're saying <laughs> 
So that's my advice from here. Thank you. Then Thank for you building, so much. Building, um, okay. uh, microservices, you may want to consider these things I've said here and also make a little uh, bit of research about microservices to help you understand this architecture is a very, very good architecture and it enables you build systems that will scale and I think it will go a long way to helping you stand out in the industry generally. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, as we've heard it all from the special guest, and that is all about best practices for designing for designing microservices. Spoken a lot on that, starting from the service boundaries to communication and coordination to data management, error handling and fault tolerance, deployment and scaling, testing and monitoring, security and compliance. And he has actually spoken on them alongside the best practices and the tools and technologies in ensuring they are all properly done. And this is all about best practices for designing microservices. Stop wondering whether you should adopt that and start digging deep into microservices. Know when it suits your organization and how you can work with it with the best practice. Because the special guest already said very clear that microservices, you know, you need to know when to use it. It's not like a thing that every company should use, especially when doesn't warrant you working on microservices and when you don't have the key factors to enable microservice architecture. So this is all about best practices for designing microservices. Stay tuned for our next episode. Next episode coming soon. This is all for best practices for designing microservices. Thank you for staying up until this time. I am still the tech day hero in the key Omolola. Thank you so much, Amos Kumai. We are really glad to have you on our show. See you. Bye. Thank you.